Anyway, um, it's so cool to read a text like this because we just came out of this series, and last week was about what it means to be a disciple. And if you remember from last week that disciples are learners, disciples are apprentices, and disciples, their goal is to learn the rabbi or the master's teaching and their view of the scriptures. And ironically tonight, I wish we would have planned this. It just happened, but it's beautiful. You're going to see an interchange between two different kinds of rabbis, two different kinds of teachers. And Mark lets us in on a debate that Jesus has with people with a different view of how to read the Bible. And so we're going to see that tonight. How does Jesus read the scriptures? And so let's look at this debate. Let's go back to chapter 7. Verse 1 says, The Pharisees, some of the teachers of the law, who had come from Jerusalem, gathered around Jesus. So this is the second time this has happened, back in Mark 2. And chapter 3, they came from Jerusalem to meet Jesus because he's growing in popularity. But they're not convinced. The religious leaders, the seminary professors, the respectable people, the, the, the people that people look to to find out which is right and which is wrong, they weren't confident that Jesus was legitimate. So they go to look at him. So they do it back in chapter 2, chapter 3, and they speak against Jesus, and Jesus is silent. He doesn't speak against them. But now they come from Jerusalem again, and we're going to notice that Jesus gets vocal. It says in verse 2, he saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled. That means unwashed. Now, what's, what in the world is going on here? Like, I'm a quasi-germaphobe, so I kind of relate to texts like this. You know, disciples, you should wash your hands. And Scott's nodding. His head. If you travel with me, it's okay to be around while I'm eating. Just don't touch my stuff. Like, you know, I have my zone, my personal barrier, and I don't like your fingers or your fork or anything going near my plate. I think that's defiled, unclean. It's in the Bible, all right? So I'm, I'm <laughs> quoting it. But actually, I'm, I'm, I'm misquoting it because this has nothing to do with germs. Absolutely nothing to do with hygiene. This is a pre-germ society. They don't even know what the unseeable micro, uh, microorganisms are. It's actually an issue of how you read the Bible. And so for 200 years leading up to the time of Jesus, the Pharisees were this group of interpreters. Like today, you have various churches that all name the name of Jesus. And you have Baptist churches and Presbyterian and Methodists and us. We're like non-denominational, which means we're a denomination of people not affiliated with denominations. You know, you have all sorts of groups and everyone has a certain reading. Well, this is what we think this Bible verse meant. And that's what was in Jesus's day. Now, the Pharisees, there weren't many of them, but they were so rigid they were so passionate about following God's law that they got a big voice in the public marketplace. They were listened to. They were respected. And they had the, all of these oral traditions, the traditions of the elders. All it was were different rabbis reading on how you read the Bible. So if the Bible says that we should be clean, the rabbis, over time, they, they defined what it meant. So the law gives you what you're supposed to do. God in the Torah, through Moses, gave what you're supposed to do. But the question is how? How do you actually do that where they live? And so over 200 years, these collected sayings that were wise and good, they were put together so that you not only knew what to do, but actually how to do it. And so the Pharisees, brass tacks, had two sets of regulations. The written ones, but they also believed, although it's not in Scripture, they believed that Moses, when he was up on the mountain, that he got two sets of laws. 
One were the oral traditions. They weren't written down over time, but that somehow God mysteriously allowed them to collect them. It's later known as the Mishnah after the time of Jesus. Boring, 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 but here's what you need to know. Two sets of laws. God-given laws and the laws that give us the how. And so that's the issue of defilement and Unwash. And notice my Bible in chapter 3, um, I'm sorry, verse 3, says like in a bracket, the Pharisees and all the Jews don't eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing holding to the tradition of the elders. That's that oral law. It's good. It helps me stay within the guardrails of what God wants. So nothing bad with that until you encounter Jesus. It says, verse 4, when they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. They observe many other traditions, such as washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So to be clean was important. Again, not hygiene. It was to honor God and come before him as holy. Now, here's the problem. These traditions were not rooted in Scripture because in Leviticus 22, don't turn there, there is only one group of people that are given the law to wash, and that is the priests. So Scripture, God says to Moses, when Aaron and his sons, the priests, when they come to the tabernacle later, the temple, when they are coming to the holy place and they're going to come before me and worship, make sure they wash their hands. Make sure they wash the pots. In other words, don't worship God like an ordinary buddy. He's the creator of the universe. Respect him. Come in a reverent way. It was for the priests, not for the people. But the Pharisees took everything that was written for one group of people, and they wanted to make sure everyone was holy. They wanted to make sure everyone was pure. So if it's good for the priests, it's good for you. And if it's good for the temple or the tabernacle, the place of worship, it's good for the home. It's good for the marketplace. Purity, 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 purity. They take one written rule and apply it to everyone. And that's what Jesus is coming against. So the issue isn't hygiene, it's about how you read the Bible, how you read the Scriptures, and what's more important, what the Scriptures say, or outside of scriptural rules that try to give you wisdom on the how. Now, the Pharisees basically applied instructions that were given for priests to everybody, and that's what we need to remember. The argument is about Jesus seeing what the Pharisees had done and putting a huge burden that, according to Jesus, God had never intended. Now look at the response because Jesus really gets lit up. Verse 5, the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition instead of eating their food with defiled hands? So they are publicly trying to shame Jesus. How do you go toe-to-toe -to -toe today? We tweet, we Instagram, we talk behind people's backs, right? We all have followers. So if I don't like something, I just tweet it out. And like, ooh, wow, he's getting all hot against him. Now, back in the day, they go to Jesus' face in a crowd, and they try to embarrass him. Because if the disciples are doing something that's against God's law, who do you blame? You blame the teacher. And if Jesus can't control his own disciples then he must not be following the proper holy way. So they're trying to publicly slam Jesus. What does Jesus do? This is great. Verse 6, he ignores them. He doesn't answer their question. Why do they eat with defiled hands? He doesn't even go to their issue. He goes to the important issue. 
Verse 6, he replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. How's that for a comeback? So, so much for the gentle Jesus. Jesus is kind. He's got the little lambies. He goes on the hill. You know, he just brushes their wool. He's kind, and he doesn't hurt anyone. Jesus, this is the only time in all of Mark's gospel that anyone is called a hypocrite, and Jesus reserves the word for the most respected religious leaders. So much for our view of Jesus. Jesus is willing to shake it up. Jesus is willing to speak the truth in love, but he will speak the truth. He calls them hypocrites. What's a hypocrite? Everyone knew in their day a hypocrite was a play actor uh, in Greco-Roman society. Their entertainment, they didn't have any TV, they didn't have Hulu Plus. What did they have? They had real acting, and it was done on a stage. And so actors played many parts. You didn't play just one role, you played many roles. How did you know who you were at the moment? I put a mask in front of my face, and I spoke out my parts. By the mask, you knew what role I was playing. And this is what Jesus is indicting these Pharisees of. He's calling them play actors. He's saying, you're masking spirituality with your extra rules, but I see behind the mask. You hypocrites. Now, what do you mean see behind the mask? He quotes from Isaiah 29. And if you read Isaiah, God comes against the false teachers. God himself sees hypocrisy, and God speaks through Isaiah, and he gives this quote. These people, verse 6, honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Now, here's the beauty. If you look back in verse 6, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. Jesus goes so far as to say, that 700 years before they were born, God spoke to Isaiah, and he was talking about you. How's that for an indictment? Jesus is passionate about this issue because this issue of Scripture and human tradition was making a mess of the community of God, like it is making a mess of the community of God today. What we're going to hear about tonight has everything to do with us and you, when you go home and on a Monday morning, open your Bible and think about following Jesus, Jesus has something to say to you. He says, they worship me in vain, verse 7. Their teachings are merely human rules. He says, verse 8, you've let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. So the word here, um, let go, if you look uh, at the beginning of verse 8, you have let go, is a word um, in Greek that could mean rejected. So he's not saying and implying, like, you've let go of God's words, like you've forgotten or you're, you're not sure. It's much stronger than that. He is saying you have rejected God's instruction, and instead of God's instruction, instead of God's words, you hold on to your own human man-made traditions. So what does Jesus do? Jesus upholds the scripture while rejecting unhealthy, unnecessary, harmful traditions. And really, that is the heart of the passage tonight. Jesus is upholding the scripture. He's not going against scripture. He's not saying that what they're doing is a bad thing. He's not saying that there's nothing wrong with coming into God's presence or before a meal honoring God and saying, God, thank you, and, and ceremonially washing your hands. He's not against that per se. But when you make that the litmus test, 
whether someone is right before God or not. He is saying, you're just like the teachers of old. You throw rules on people's backs, but you don't help them to unload that burden. And he has nothing good to say to the Pharisees. Now, he's not just giving a blanket statement. He actually gives them a very specific example. Look at verse 9. He continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. And then he gives one. Moses said, and then he quotes the Torah. He quotes the scriptures. Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father and mother is to be put to death. Honoring your parents is high up there. It's five, number five on the top ten commandments. It's really important that you honor the people that God gave you, that you respect them. He goes so much as to quote the penalty for not obeying. This could lead to death. But at the same time, this is what they do. Verse 11, you say, emphasis on the word you, if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is korban, that is, it's a Hebrew word devoted to God. Do you notice the stuff in brackets here? Like there's a couple of times that we get it in brackets. Back with the whole washing of kettles, it's in brackets. What is Mark doing? For the most part, when Mark is writing a gospel, remember this is after Jesus has already risen, he's writing it, uh, he stays out of the way. But in chapter 7, he jumps in at these important times and he wants to explain what they're reading because korban is like a Hebrew word that's translated into Greek. And if you're not Jewish, you don't know what that means. So Mark tells us, like in quotes, hey, it means devoted to God. What's going on here? It's not in the Bible. But in one of their human traditions, one way that you could give is called, we'll call it for today's terms, deferred giving. Uh, if you've got a big estate, right, and you want to manage your money well, you can apply deferred giving. That is, you can commit something to a charity now, get some of the benefits, but you hold on for, for a bit. And when you die or at the right time, you can release those benefits and give it to a, an institution, a church, uh, a hospital or whatever, you can plan your giving. So back in Jesus' day, you could, if you own land, you could devote it to God, make it korban. That means that you didn't use it for your own good, but you held on to the land. The land is still yours, but it wasn't treated like as ordinary land. This has been given to God. Someday this is going to be given, maybe sold, and used to help at the temple. Maybe they're going to use the crops on that land and give it directly to the priests. You could defer. I hold the land. It's my land. But I'm dedicating it to God's use. So that's, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Nothing bad about that. Here's the twist, though. This is what was happening in their, in their day. Verse 12. If you declare as koban, or devoted to God, then you no longer let those people do anything for their father and mother. So what he's saying is what happened by the time of Jesus is you could hide your assets, so to speak, if you're responsible. And in, in Jesus' day, I think it's great that kids are responsible for the care of their parents. That was known It's in the culture. You would be known as the lowest of the low idiot, if I could use this term, for not caring for your mom and dad. But he was saying that you're letting people, and you're actually pushing them, because this property's been devoted to God Oh, by the way, you Pharisees get the benefit from the land. But you're saying now they can't use that land if their mom and dad get sick or hit hard financial times. They can't use that land and now sell it, use it to help mom and dad. 
you're putting this human good tool, devote your land to God, but now because of your extra rules, you're saying they can't help their parents and he's not blaming the people for using this as like a tax shelter or some sort of way around the law. He's actually blaming the Pharisees. Your rules are hurting them from following God's clear commands. Verse 13, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and you do many things like this. And so Jesus is clearing up like a tax loophole here and saying, you have clouded the issue. Command is clear. Honor father, mother, care for them. If not, you're as good as dead. You might as well be put to death if you don't do the obvious. God cares about kids caring for their parents. But instead, you have so twisted the, the obvious law of God, the good law of God, and you've thrown all of this extra. So now you teachers are putting people in a position where they can no longer release funds to help mom and dad. He's just saying this is one example. Because look at the end of verse 13. Look at it with me. And you do many things like that. So Jesus is emphatic. You, you, you. Look at, look at how many times he says it here. We're going to throw it up on the screen. You say, you no longer uh, let them do anything. You nullify the word of God. You do many things like that. He is pointing the finger at a system that instead of keeping to Scripture and what God has clearly said, a system that puts extra layers and in it not only distorts the word of God, but actually works against it. He is so inflamed. Now remember, Jesus is God come to earth. How many of you want to make God mad? <laughs> I mean, you don't want to make God mad, but he hates it when we add to what he has said. He hates it when we teach things to kids that are not clearly written and so keep kids from falling in love with the God that created them. Now, What's, what's happening here? Look at verse 14. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone. So now Jesus is going to teach. He says, listen to me. Nine times in Mark, we see this phrase, listen to me. It's when Jesus is about to make things definitively clear. He says, and understand this, nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. So, Jesus gives a, a really short parable. He's not quoting a verse here. Short parable. Nothing that goes into a person can defile them. Now, if you're a Pharisee and hearing this, you want to jump all over Jesus and give him a beat down because he obviously doesn't know the law and the Pharisees know better. You know what? Nothing that goes in a person can defile them. In the day of Jesus, keeping yourself holy before God by keeping yourself clean, by eating the right things, by abstaining from things that God has said do not touch, those are paramount to saying, I'm actually a God follower. So what you did externally really mattered. So in the days of the Pharisees, in the days of Jesus, the heroes were those 
who were either beaten, abused, or even martyred and killed for Jews who, against the Roman culture, stood up to Rome, who enjoyed pork. The Roman people enjoyed pork, but a Jew would never eat pork. So Jews who stood up and were physically abused or beaten or even killed or misunderstood because they didn't defile themselves by eating something that's unclean. For Jesus to say that nothing that goes in you could defile you is scandalous. We don't see it as a big deal because we don't understand what's happening at the time. But Jesus is redefining what it means to be right before God and redefining what it means to be a spiritual leader. And here's what he's doing. He's saying publicly in front of everyone, these Pharisees don't know what they're talking about. Absolute scandal. Remember, these are the PhDs. These are the seminary profs. These are the university presidents. These are the people with all of the extra letters and dots after their name. These are the people that were important. And Jesus says, they don't even know what defiles a person. It's not about what goes in. It is about what comes out. So Jesus is setting himself up. It's no wonder they kill Jesus. Why do the Pharisees, as we get closer and closer to the end of Mark, and they go against him with more vigor, in a more violent ways, why do they want to kill him? It's because Jesus is redefining what it means to follow God, and he's saying, if you follow the Pharisees, you will, you will die. You will be destroyed. You've got to avoid them. They're sick. They're sadistic. They're from hell. They're demonic. Whoa, gentle Jesus, yes. He hates it when people go against what God has clearly said. Now, how do we know what this means and then how do we apply it for ourselves? Well, Jesus gives the explanation. Thankfully, Mark doesn't leave us there. If not, we'd be in trouble. Verse 17 is where the scene changes. They're out in the marketplace and the Pharisees come toe-to-toe -to -toe Jesus. Jesus doesn't answer their issue. He goes to the real issue and then he walks away. And it's left, like in total tension. He doesn't explain it. He gives a parable. They don't get it. And then he walks into a home. Verse 17, after they left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. So you have outsiders who don't get it. Now you have insiders who do get it. Are you so dull? He asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? Being right before God, being in a, in a position where you're honoring God, worshiping God in the right way, has nothing to do with, goes, with what goes into your mouth. This is contrary to their whole way of thinking. If I were to come and say, no, you should never worship on a Saturday. Tuesday, actually Wednesday morning, Tuesday night to Wednesday morning, from midnight to 3 a.m., Tuesday night to Wednesday morning, midnight to 3 a.m., that is the only time God will listen to us. You think, you have gone bonkers. Stop drinking the insomnia stuff. Move over to another place. What's going on? Like, if He is going absolutely against everything that, hear me, culturally they had been taught. Here's what happens when we mix Scripture with our own extra cultural traditions. It can actually twist what the Scripture is clearly saying. And so Jesus says, don't you get it? And it has nothing to do with what comes from the outside. Why? Food goes into the stomach. Now, food in and of itself isn't unclean is what Jesus is saying. 
food isn't evil. You can't somehow be, be made wrong in God's sight by what you bring in. The issue is actually deeper. Food goes out in the stomach, verse uh, 18. Are you so dull? Don't you see that whatever enters a person from the outside, it can't defile them. Verse 19, for it doesn't go into the heart, but into their stomach, and then out of the body. The NIV is being very, very politically correct here. It says out into the toilet is, is a more literal reading. Don't you see food goes in beautifully, and it goes out of the toilet. You see the graphic? Just ask any mom here with young kids right now changing diapers. It all looked pretty, or most of it, except the green peas that are smashed. You know, it goes in, and look, oh, they're eating Cheerios. and oh, oh, they had their first fresh vegetables and fruit. Oh, isn't it wonderful going in? A couple of hours later, a little bit of heat on the inside, and it's nasty coming out. That's just the way it is. And so Jesus is being graphic. He's not playing, but he's being graphic. He's saying, these guys are so concerned about how people bring things in. They don't realize it's what comes out of us that makes us evil. They've missed the heart of God. They've missed the thrust of Scripture. They've missed the plot line completely. And then in brackets, in my Bible, it says, in saying this, so Mark steps into the story. You don't see him much, but now he jumps in. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Now, what's with the all foods clean? Now, it's not an issue today, but in the early Jesus movement, there was a real struggle because you had Jews who began to follow Jesus, but they were used to their traditions, kosher laws, what you eat, what you don't eat, when you clean, how you clean. And, and when you started following Jesus, many of the Jews, not most, they just kept these traditions as well. But then in churches like Rome, where we think Mark is writing to, you have non-Jews join the church who have no idea of any of these like Jewish traditions. So they eat anything and they don't ceremonially wash. And so you have people come, coming over to a missional community on a Tuesday night and they're all going to enjoy each other. And you have the Jews appalled that their brothers and sisters are eating this way. And then you have the Gentiles saying, what? It's a taco. Like, you know, leave me alone. I, I, we eat what we eat. And so what do you do? Now, Mark is applying what Jesus said to the Pharisees now out to the church at large. He is saying, Jesus brings light to the heart of God from the beginning. It is not about what, is, what food is right and what food is wrong. There are bigger issues, and it's the heart. So, so verse 20 gets to where we need to land. It says, he went on, Jesus went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. Now, we need to sit in that for a minute. Uh, when we think about what it means to follow Jesus in our day and age, how much of it do we apply to what we do that other people can see? You're a follower of Jesus. Are you a good one? How do we even evaluate what a good follower of Jesus looks like? Most of us, if not all of us, default to, well, I do this, I do this, I do this, I don't do that, and I would never do that. I think about it, I fantasize about it, but I would never do it. And, and we evaluate our rightness or wrongness before God by external things, often, not always, but often. 
And so Jesus wants to redefine what it means to be right. It is what comes out of a person that can defile them. So he declares all food clean. Why? You can't swallow evil, but it does leak out. And this is where it gets tough. You can't swallow evil. Like, you're, you're not going to eat the wrong thing and suddenly Jesus is, No, it's not about what goes in. It's about evil that begins within and then poisons everything on the outside. And so Jesus wants to liberate us from some stuff, but then guard us at the same time. The problem is not external rituals. The problem is what's going on in the heart. And by heart, we don't mean, you know, it is the center of who you are. It's the personality. It's the emotion. It's the core of how you think, how you feel, and how you ultimately behave. At the center of you, God is looking, and he wants to know what's on the inside. And verse 21 exposes some of that. For it is from within. It is out of a person's heart. And then Jesus puts this glorious list that we love to look at. That evil thoughts come. So funny thing, Jesus first goes to our thought life. He says, it's out of the heart, out of the center. Where does evil come from? It begins with our thinking. It begins with the way we process the world. This is what I think. This is what God says. And somehow, if you're going to be engaged in any form of evil, it begins with somehow internally you saying, actually, I don't think God said that, or God didn't mean that, or I know better than God. That's the source of evil. Remember Adam and Eve at the beginning of the garden? You know, the, the, the Satan comes and tempts them and says, did God really say, if you eat of it, you'll die? And they say, well, actually, come to think about it, maybe we won't. Actually, man, maybe God is trying to hold back. Hey, why not the shiny apple? Or whatever it was. Like, you know, we, for some reason we think apple. I don't know why. Maybe it's because of, I don't know, Oregon, Washington, whatever. Um, but what, what, and so we put ourselves in the place of God in our thought life. Uh, we say to ourselves, well, God understands. We say to ourselves, well, I don't know if God's really watching. Ever play that one? I, I do it. Like, well, he's, he's kind of busy right now. He's caught in 26 traffic. Like, you know, I, I, he, you know, we justify. And so evil begins with our thoughts. Now, what comes out of our thoughts? And funny, the next thing he puts is sexual immorality. Any deviance from the way God designed men and women to live. One man, one woman for life. Anything outside of that is, the word there is porneia. It's a deviation from what God has designed. Now, I'm not saying what I designed or what U.S. law designs. I'm saying that any deviation, it comes from our thought, I know better than God, and then it leads to me expressing my sexuality in ways that are off. And this hits so many of us. Then theft, then murder, then Adultery, and those are all actions. But then Jesus goes to attitudes, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, folly. So Jesus does not like make this false line, well, you know, God's after your behavior. He wants you to behave right. And what you think, well, I mean, you can't help what you think. 
Actually, Jesus covers evil on both sides of the spectrum. Our thoughts begin to go off. We believe our thoughts, and it shows up in the way we live. And Jesus says, you want to find evil? It's not going to be from the externals. Just look at the center of where someone is. Look at their heart. So in doing this, what do we, uh, what do we get out of it? Where do we go? What do we do? Uh, just a couple of thoughts tonight. Number one, following Jesus is about more than human rules. We've got to get this deep in our soul. Following Jesus is about more than human rules. Human rules are good. Human rules are important. Tradition is all there. We're all a product of Scripture and human tradition. We can't say, well, I just follow the Bible. Nice try. It doesn't work that way. We all have and engage with human traditions, ways of understanding the Bible. And so what we need to do is we need to be wise. We need to ask God for discernment. We need to grow. We need to think. We need to talk. We need to wrestle with issues because... If you just go by rules, you're going to end up like the Pharisees. You're going to miss the heart of God. You're going to fall off. Even with good intentions, the Pharisees had great intentions. The problem is you could have great intentions about something that's wrong and still be wrong. So God's just not looking for sincerity. He's actually looking you to pursue him with your whole heart, your whole mind, and all of your strength. And oh, by the way, when you do that, you're going to love your neighbor like yourself. Jesus is interested in attitude change and action change. But we need to know this. He produces those things in us. So we need to, we need to hit the center. Now, what are the extremes? I'll give you two extremes. And I'm on a stereotype, but that's what we do. I get paid to stereotype. Um, two stereotypes, but they may be helpful. One extreme is legalism. Now, we know what that is. Legalism is all about me defining my relationship with God by what I do and what I don't do. So legalism says I attempt to earn God's acceptance by keeping human religious rules. So i got to go to church on Sunday. i got to give something. i got to be nice. Gotta, you know, i got to do all this. If I do that, then I'm right with God. And legalism is deadly. And I would dare say it's a generational thing. Some generations waited towards legalism and others follow the opposite extreme. It's not the greatest problem in Portland. We do whatever we want. Most of us are not heavily legalistic, but some of our religious traditions are. And so I, I will never forget hot growing up in, um, in New York, hot and humid, and being told by an usher, I can't wear those shorts into church. Why? It's the sanctuary. Like, God takes a nap in there? I wasn't that rude, but, you know, I, I was thinking, like, I can't wear shorts into the holy place. It's hot and humid. But it stuck in my mind that I'm sure there was some good reason why a kid can't wear shorts when it's hot. But to me, that was like the defining mark of what let me into the room. So the church I grew up in was amazing. I love it. I'm grateful. But if it leaned, it leaned on the legalism side. If you do these things, you don't get slapped upside the head. If you, you know, all, all that. So that, that's there. But the other side is equally dangerous and I think is more in tune with the culture, especially if you're 25 and younger. And to make it rhyme is legalism and license. That is, when you get a license, physical driver's license, suddenly you could take this, whatever tons of metal, and, and drive it. You get a license, like, suddenly before I couldn't do it, but now... 
Like, I can make left turns and right turns. I can parallel park. I can make U-turns, which are illegal in the city of Portland. All U-turns are illegal unless it clearly has a U-turn sign. You need to know this. You will get a ticket. Just ask Steve Marshman, who almost got one. And almost, he talked his way out of it. Um, so, so license says, I am the driver. And it sounds beautiful and liberating when you're the driver of your own spiritual experience, doesn't it? So this is where you, you take, like, I'm not going to follow all those man-made rules. So what I do is I read the Bible, at least the convenient portions. I skip the inconvenient ones, or I simply reinterpret them. Let's just, let's just take the hot buttons of, of personal behavior. Yeah, I know the Bible says, um, well, let's just use one. Uh, don't get drunk. Let me give you the quote, don't get drunk. Yeah, but I'm 22, and I'm not that drunk. I could drive. And you know, I'm, I'm, I'm fine. I can handle one more, right? And so what I'll do is I'll sober up by Sunday and go to church, and God knows my heart. So now, somebody like, oh, shoot, he was with me last night. Like, you know, okay. <laughs> now, if that happened, here's what we do. There's room in the scripture. If you sin, confess it, and Jesus is faithful and just and won't smash you, he will forgive you, make you whole, set you free, and change your thinking so that you realize that that kind of behavior doesn't honor God. License says, I don't need you telling me how to follow Jesus. You see the difference? Which is more dangerous? Me tripping off of that or legalism on one side or license? Which is more dangerous? It's a trick question. Of course it's a trick question. They're both dangerous because they both miss the heart of God and they both ignore the scriptures. One says, I don't want all of it. The other says, you have, must have this and then some. And what Jesus wants to do is to set us free to serve him. Now, it sounds convenient to pick your own spirituality, but it's dangerous. So following Jesus is about more than human rules. Yeah, we know that. But the second one is a balance to that. Following Jesus involves submitting and changing myself and coming under the authority of God's scriptures. If we only read one of those, we're going to miss the heart of God. It's about more than human rules, yeah, but it's about, an, about me growing and submitting myself to what God has clearly spoken, and the things that I'm not sure about, using humility and wisdom and saying, God, I don't know what to do, but give me the grace to know the difference between right and wrong. Now, if you're wondering, well, how do I, how do I find that balance? What do, what do I do? Hebrews 4, beautiful scripture that speaks to you. If you really want to grow in this area, it says the word of God, what God has said, clear stuff, not, not my opinion, what God has said, in the context here, he's quoting back to the Exodus and back to what God had spoken to Moses. The word of God is alive. We could stop there. This is not just a piece of human literature. Of course, it is literature. It was written by men. Yeah, but it's actually alive. And it's active. So it's, it's old, but it's brand new. We need to see it as both. And it's sharp, ouch, it's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. Don't get lost in the details. This is what it does. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of what? The heart. 
So God has given us a way to have a heart that's not defiled, that's not off, that's not dirty. God has given us the way to have a clean heart. And the means by which we can have the pure heart is to allow the scriptures to speak into your soul. When you come to the word of God, when you come to what God has clearly said, and you are willing to say, God, if it is right and I am wrong, I'm willing to go with what's right, then what happens is God jumps in the middle of your soul, and I don't know how he does it, but he fixes your attitudes, he adjusts your thoughts. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. I love that blanket clause there, because like, yeah, but, 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 there ain't no buts, is what it's saying. There's nothing that you could do that goes outside what God has said. So God sees it all. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Now, we take that as a negative, but it's actually a positive. God knows it when you and I come to him and we have an attitude or a thought that's off. And he loves it because he sees it all when we say, God, oh, you know what I want to do, but give me the strength to follow you. God loves it when we come to what he said and we move in the direction of what he said instead of resisting it and rebelling. And, and so tonight you just need to hear this. Jesus loves you deeply, no matter what you've done. So we're not here to give you a guilt trip. We're not here to say, see, because of the thoughts, the attitude. Because with that list, everyone's dead, right? With the list that we read that Jesus said from Mark, it covers everybody. But we could leave with the wrong like, sense of like the Pharisees gave a guilt trip. Is Jesus giving a bigger guilt trip? No, Jesus is actually setting us free. Jesus is saying that because he sees within, he can put his love deep within. And Jesus loves you deeply no matter what your storyline, no matter what you're wrestling with right now, no matter what you know you're guilty of and you haven't repented of, Jesus is for you. That's why he came to destroy the toxic thinking of the Pharisees and to release us and set us free. And Jesus proved it on the cross where he dies for our sin. He dies in our place to prove that if there's anyone who loves us, it's Jesus because he knows our sinfulness and while we were still sinners, Jesus dies and rises again for me, for you. So you're loved by God and God wants to bring you in and Jesus wants to invade your thinking, your feeling, and then your behavior and set you free to be the human that he created you to be in the first place. But there's something we must do. We must read. What do I mean? We must see what God has done and respond accordingly. So when we read stuff like this, it's not okay to check out and say, ooh, good, let's keep going, Mark 8, come on, bring it, you know, move right along. We stop and we say, Spirit of God, what does this say to me? And so tonight, that's what we want to do. We want to respond to what God has already said. So in light of what Jesus says about legalism and about license, where is the state of your heart right now? Put another way, where are you in relationship to Jesus now? Not like three years ago when things were hot and you were passionate and you were going for it. Not tomorrow, what you think you'll be, hope you'll be, dream you'll be. But let's talk now. You're here, and where's your heart? Here's the beautiful thing. Jesus already sees your heart, and he's looking with love to make you right, 
to take you from where you are to where you need to be. And the question is, will you participate? Will you partner with God? Will you say, yeah, Jesus, I need you to deal with this area of my heart?